Today's scripture is from Genesis 6, verses 1 through 10. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Then Ephelim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his thoughts, of his hearts, was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Good morning. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are the Lord of history. And you are awesome and holy, as we've just sung about. And yet you've chosen to reach down and give us truth and reality and help us understand your workings in history. So today, Lord, open our eyes and help us know you better and to see you in a clearer light maybe than we ever have before. Open our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Matthew 24, Jesus says this as he's describing his second coming. Verse 37, he says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. When Jesus comes again, it will be just like the days of Noah. Well, we're in Genesis and we're studying the days of Noah over the next few weeks. But I think what we see in Jesus' words there, if we want to understand our time, if we want to understand what's coming when Jesus comes again, if we want to understand the flow of history, we need to understand what was going on in Noah's time, what was happening And so Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, that we're looking at this morning, gives us the flow of history. It gives us the pattern of history as we look at Noah's time. Arnold Toynbee, famous historian, wrote a multi-volume work, studied history, and he found that there were 21 civilizations throughout time, and every civilization, he said, followed the same pattern of growth, and decay. Well, that pattern is explained in these 10 verses of Genesis chapter 6. So if we want to understand our own times and we want to understand history, both the beginning of time, what happened in Noah's day, and what's coming at the end, and the times in between, it's important we understand these verses. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 6, and let's explore the pattern of history. And I see three steps in this passage, 
The first step is that man acts independently. Man acts independently. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Well, as you look at this, obviously one of the first questions that comes to mind is who are these sons of God? Who could they possibly be? We, we see that man has been expanding on the earth, both the line of Seth and the line of Cain. But who are these sons of God? There are three main theories about who they could be. The first one is that these are angelic beings. This makes sense because the word sons of God, that little phrase, occurs in Job chapter 1 where, and chapter 2 where it says the sons of God appeared before the throne of God in heaven and Satan was among them. Clearly there are angelic beings there. But there's a problem with that because as you go on in the passage, it's clearly the, clear that men are being judged, not angelic beings. So somehow these must be men, somehow, related to men. It's hard to figure out. The second theory is that the sons of God are the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, and they are having children by the line of Cain, which is the ungodly line that we see in the previous chapter. The problem with this is there's not that kind of distinction. And Why would Seth's line be called the sons of God? Yes, they're a more godly line, but in the passage they're being judged for their choices. So... That doesn't really make sense. The, the third theory is that these are probably from the line of Cain. They're rulers, they're tyrants, they're princes, they're powerful men that are seizing wives, taking probably a number of wives, creating a harem against God's creation, original creation of man and woman. Which one of these is it? It's hard to tell. Um, I kind of like... What the Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie says, he says this, the best solution is to combine the angelic interpretations with the tyrants or prince's divine king view. In other words, the tyrants were demon-possessed. There were spiritual forces coming upon these men and leading them to act in a way that was contrary to God's will. That makes the most sense to me, but I'm not positive, but it is a warning to us and a reminder of what happens in the New Testament as we are told that when mankind acts independently of God, it opens us up to demonic influence. It just does. We see that clearly in Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it describes what man is like apart from God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right? That's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And Ephesians 6, Paul tells us and reminds us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. You see, our real battle is against spiritual forces. They do influence us. When we open up ourselves to act independently of God, then we are subject 
to demonic influence. We're in a spiritual battle here, folks, and that's reflected, I think, in this passage in Genesis chapter 6. But whoever these men were, and I'm going to call them men, these sons of God who were taking wives, uh, whoever they were, note the pattern. It comes across in the Hebrew, not so well in the English, but it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good, literally good, and it can be translated beautiful. They saw that they were good, and they took wives for themselves. They saw what looked good to them, and they took. Does that sound familiar at all in our study in Genesis? Think back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when Satan has gotten Eve to begin to question God and his goodness. And what did she do? She saw that the fruit of the tree that God said don't eat of, she saw that it was good for eating. So she took. You see, that is the pattern of man acting independently of God. It's always the pattern. We see what we think is best for us. We see what we think we should do. We think... We see what we think we should have, what is good. We define what's good, and we orient our lives to get it for ourselves. That is the essence of man acting independently from God. And this is what drives every man and woman who does not submit to God. Now, our advertising world knows this, right? You see what looks good, and then you take it for yourselves. Otherwise, why would I have had you know, an inch-thick uh, packet of flyers in my Sunday paper this morning, all with glossy, beautiful pictures trying to arouse in humanity this sense of, wow, this is what I need. This is, looks good to me, so I better do what I can to get it. TV advertisers know that. Our world is oriented towards feeding that sense of independence from God that says, I see what looks good, and I'm going to go get it, regardless of what God says. So it raises a question for every one of us, and I hope this question nags at you this whole morning. (laughs) How is my life oriented? Towards trusting God, depending on Him, seeking His will? Or is it oriented towards trying to figure out what's best for me, what I need out of life, and trying to get it? That's the contrast. Those are the two approaches of life. Notice God's response in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive or contend with man forever. He says, This is hard for me. It's a struggle when I see humanity that I've created and I want to have relationship with and I know they will be most fulfilled in relationship with me. And it hurts God when He sees us go our own way. It becomes a battle with him. We are resisting him. So he says, my spirit won't fight with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. This is another uh, interpretive question. What's 120 years mean? It could mean very possibly that God's putting the limit on how long each individual person will live from now on. Now, a few people, Noah, Abraham, others lived far longer than 120 years in the next few generations, but it wasn't very long before no one really lives, or very rarely would anyone live beyond 120 years, and that's certainly true in our day, right? 
God put a limit. Whereas the previous generations, Methuselah lived 969 years. I mean, people lived a lot longer in those days. But God puts a limit on each person's lifetime. That could be. The other option is that God is saying, I won't fight with man forever. I will give him 120 years to respond. And at that time, I will wipe man off the face of the earth in the flood of Noah. I tend to think it's the latter, but however you take it, God is putting limits on man because of our resistance to him. You see, God is struggling. It hurts him to see us go our own way. It's painful for him. It's a battle for him. But verse 4, I think, expands on how man is acting independently and going his own way even further. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Notice that here, God is struggling with what man's doing, acting independently, but where is man going? He's expanding, he's becoming more mighty, more independent, more powerful, and who does man exalt? Who becomes famous to men? That's that last phrase, men of renown. Who are the famous ones? In our culture, in our world, in our fallen world, who does man exalt? Those who are powerful, independent, who take life by the horns, who can handle life on their own, who would never turn to Christianity because Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Those who have money and power and influence, those are the ones that our world exalts. Those are the men of renown. Those are the famous ones. And those are the very things that break the heart of God. Because he knows those who depend on such things don't realize they need him. As Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible in God's power, but in man's power, there's no way. Why? Because things, wealth, power, influence, make us think wrongly that we don't need God. And so here is man at his extreme, acting independently of God, exalting those who do. And that's the essence of man apart from God. Seeing what he thinks he needs, taking it for himself because it looks good to him. You know, it explains a lot in our culture. It explains what's happened over history. It explains what's gone on in our economic meltdown in just the last couple of months. People saying, you know what, I really don't have the money for this, but I want to take out a loan that I can't afford so I can get what I want now. And banks who are greedy who want more, who see the opportunity to have more. They go ahead and give loans that are unsecured, that are risky loans because they want to make more money and it just gets more and more complicated and more and more messy. But the explanation of it is this very verse. Man seeing what he thinks is good and trying to get it his own way himself. And in the end, if it doesn't work out, we want the government to bail us out. Sad, but true. 
So what happens next in the pattern of history? First, man acts more and more independently of God and exalts those who do. Notice verse 5. This is God's view of the whole thing. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Folks, this is a tragic verse. Remember back in creation, God created man and woman, and it says God saw that it was very good. Now after the fall, just a few generations, it says the Lord saw what was going on, and it was very bad, very evil. That man's actions become more and more evil over time. You see, man acts independently of God and then step two is that evil spreads. It becomes more rampant, more resistant to God, more hard-hearted. And so that our very actions become harmful to self and to others. And it says every intent of the heart, that word intent is a formation. It's used to describe a potter making a pot, forming it. And he says, we form intentions, thoughts in our minds. And he says, every intent, every thought becomes more and more evil continually. This is powerful. (laughs) This is a picture of mankind at his worst. You think, well, that's not really part of our day. Our day's different. We're not like that. Well, let me read. uh, This was a study done by the Minnesota Crime Commission trying to understand why there was so much crime in our culture. And they wrote this. Every baby starts life as a little savage. (laughs) He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. (laughs) He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, see, take, (laughs) every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. That's a secular commission trying to understand why there's so much crime in our world. Note the progression. Man acts independently, and what happens over time is that our selfishness becomes more and more controlling, and there's more and more evil and demonic behavior. We're more influenced by Satan himself. It's true of an individual, and it's true of society as well. You know of individuals if you've walked on earth very long, people you've loved who seem to be doing well and even going to church and and all, and yet you see them turn their backs on God, decide they're going to find life their own way, and they become more and more corrupt. And you see over time, they end up doing things that you would have never believed they could have ever done. You see, that's the pattern. When we turn our backs on God and act independently, decide we're going to get what we think is best for us, regardless of what God says. The result is greater and greater evil. And it's true of societies. 21 civilizations that have become more and more corrupt over time, more and more immoral, and eventually they collapse. 
because of the self-destructive behavior they've fallen into. You say, well, maybe that was in Noah's day. Maybe they were really bad then, but people aren't so bad today. Well, uh, there's plenty of crime, plenty of evil, and there are horrible atrocities going on all over the world today, right now, in Sudan and the Darfur region, in the Congo, in Indonesia, in China, in Iraq, in Iran. What's the bottom line of all of this conflict and all this horrible atrocity? It's man saying, I'm going to get what I want now, regardless of what God says. And it's true here in America as well. Just watch the news. (laughs) The Joseph Duncans of the world are in many ways a product of a society where we exalt the wrong things, we exalt the wrong kinds of people, and we give people free reign to see what they want and they go for it and it creates conflict with others, acting independently of God. So the pattern of history, man acts independently, he becomes more and more evil, more and more corrupt, and then step three, God grieves and God judges. God does not allow it to go on. He grieves and he judges. Notice verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Or your translation, NIV, says uh, the Lord grieved that he had made man on the earth and he had great pain in his heart. Great pain. That word for grieved or sorry, the first one, is a word that talks about having deep emotional pain. Deep regret at what's happened. It's used to both man and God when life turns out totally contrary to what you would have longed for it to happen. And so you have deep emotional pain. It's used in the book of Judges where an entire tribe of Israel is wiped out and the people are grieving that this has happened. And the word for pain is exactly the same root that's used in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where it says, because of the fall, the woman will have great pain in childbirth and the man will have great pain or toil when he works the land. You see, sin has tainted all of us and there's great pain we experience because of sin. But what this shows us is that God himself feels incredible pain and grief at our sin as well. God is not some remote God off in the distance waiting up there for us to mess up so he can judge us. No, he's a God who feels every hurt, every pain, every independent action, grieves his heart. God is a passionate God that connects with us because he created us with a need to have a relationship with him. That's what we're created for. And any time we move away from that, God's heart is broken. It's broken. He grieves. He hurts. He loves us deeply. And he's deeply affected by our choices. Now, some of you may be thinking, because this has been a, a struggle for some, that, well, if God connects that much for us, that doesn't make sense. I thought God was sovereign. He knew what we were going to do all along. Yes, but that's the amazing thing about God. He is sovereign, and he did know we were going to turn our backs on him. But he's still connected to enter in to the pain and the struggle of it. 
He's, he chooses to be affected by everything we do in his sovereignty because he loves us. And that's almost a definition of love, isn't it? Allowing yourself to be hurt by the wrong choices of others. Connecting with them so deeply that it pains you when they make choices that are not good. And that's what God does for us. He's a God of love and compassion, but as we see through all the scriptures, he's also a God of holiness and justice. And because of that, he cannot tolerate sin. He, he gives us 120 years. He gives us much time, but eventually he must judge. And verse 7 says this, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God in his justice must wipe us off the face of the earth when we choose to act independently of him and destroy our lives and bring destruction and evil more and more. He cannot live with that kind of world. So is there any hope for us? In Noah's day, he wiped out every living thing except Noah and his family. We'll look at that next week as we continue studying the times of Noah. In the future, he will wipe out and destroy the heavens and the earth by fire. Is there any hope for us? Grace is our only hope. (laughs) Verse 8, But in this whole scenario, Noah found grace, and that's literally the word, favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Our only hope is to find favor with God, somehow be in right relationship with him, somehow get back with him in a right relationship. Our culture is increasingly corrupt, evil, moving further and further from God, moving closer and closer, I think, to judgment. And the church too often has thought, well, I I don't like the fact that society is becoming more and more corrupt, so... Let's try to find some political influence somehow to change things, somehow to make it more palatable to us as believers. But I like what Cal Thomas wrote in an article this week in the paper. You may have read it. He says this about the religious right and our attempts over the last 30 years to legislate morality. He says, 30 years of trying to use government to stop abortion, preserve opposite-sex marriage, improve television and movie content, and transform culture into the conservative evangelical image has failed. The question now becomes, should conservative Christians redouble their efforts, contributing more millions to radio and TV preachers and activists? Or would it be wise to try something else? (laughs) I opt for trying something else. Too many conservative evangelicals have put too much faith in the power of government to transform Culture. So here's what he suggests. If results are what conservative evangelicals want, they already have a model. It is contained in the life and commands of Jesus of Nazareth. Suppose millions of conservative evangelicals engaged in an old and proven type of radical behavior. Suppose they follow the admonition of Jesus to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, and care for widows and orphans. You see, Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. And we're told in the New Testament that he became a preacher of righteousness to his world. We don't see him saying one word. How did he preach righteousness? We see it in verse 9. Notice what it says. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, I don't believe Noah had it all together. In fact, we'll find in a couple weeks that Noah was a sinner just like the rest of us. So it wasn't that he was all together. But what he chose to do in this corrupt world was walk with God. Noah walked with God. It's a very different picture than seeing what you want and taking it because you think that'll satisfy you. Walking with God looks very, very different. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, I think the best example of walking with God is Jesus himself. He's our best example because he was the perfect man who came to show us what it means to live a life depending on God, walking with him, trusting in him. There's a picture of that in John chapter 6, verse 38, as Jesus says this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And over in chapter 8 of John, he says this, verse 28 and 29, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus shows us what it means to walk with God. It means to be with him. It means to constantly be talking to him. Lord, what is your will? And seeking to do his will, not your own. Seeking to speak his words, not your own. Speaking to live his life, not your own. Seeking to have him live through you. Living as though God really is real, because he is. And orienting your life around him. Just like mariners in the sea in the old days, before they had all the equipment, they oriented their lives and their journey around the North Star. That's how they always knew where they were and where they were going. We are to orient our lives around Jesus himself and seek to do his will, not our own. That's what Noah did, and that's what we are called to do. And we do that as we walk in community with one another. Now, God will call us, if we seek to do his will, some of us to be involved in the political process, to help change laws. God will call many of us to simply live our lives preaching righteousness through our actions and our words when God calls us to speak up, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, wherever we might be. But the question is, are we walking with God or are we orienting our life where we are looking for what we think will fulfill us, seeing what looks good to us, and taking it. That's our choice. That's our choice. Why is America even here, given our immorality? I think it's simply because God is being patient and because the church where we have done well in living out our faith, walking with God right where we are, we are salt and light in society and culture, Salt preserves meat so it doesn't become more corrupt and spoil. We are to be salt and light, so we're bringing light and salt scattered throughout our communities, 
scattered about our culture. And it brings preservation as we live out our faith and walk with God wherever God has placed us. That's the beauty of what we do. And in our Western culture, I think Christians have done amazing things, starting hospitals and schools. Those were all Christian initially. Starting orphanages, caring for the poor and disabled, living out their faith morally and their ethics, being people of integrity who walk with God and do His will. That is what changes culture. And that's what we have the privilege to do as we learn to not take what we think we should have to fulfill us, but we learn to let go and walk with God. Man saw what was good and took it. But a person walking with God trusts in his grace, his forgiveness, given us on the cross through Jesus Christ, that grace that is always accessible to us because of what he did, dying for us, took care of our sin, past, present, and future, so that we could be restored to him and walk with him again. The pattern of history for a life or a culture is man acts independently of God, becomes more evil, and eventually gets judged. But all of that gets changed when a life will say, Lord, I will turn to you and your grace and learn to seek your will as I walk with you. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you, I just ask you to speak to our hearts right now. And Lord, show us where we have acted independently of you, where we've oriented our lives around our own desires, what we think is good for us, and we pursue those things rather than resting in your grace and learning to walk with you and do your will. Oh Lord, change us. May we learn to be people like Noah. People who found favor in your sight as we learn to walk with you. And we thank you for the grace that's available to us through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.